0: The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneeessary at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. Today in studio, we have Charles Hoffman, Merchant Marine. And Jim, if you could go ahead and kick us off.
1: Thank you, Jason, and welcome, Charles, to the St. Charles County Veterans Museum again. Thank you. And uh, the Merchant Marine is an intriguing story for many reasons. I th- most people know that the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. But a whole lot of people don't realize that Merchant Marine sailors were getting killed in convoy duty, you know, many months ahead of time. It was a very dangerous job. You were born in St. Louis, and I, off air we were talking about how you joined the Merchant Marines, and you kind of corrected me a bit. And But you were 18 years old, and you wanted to join the Navy. Can you kind of tell us what happened there?
2: Well, I went down for the Navy exam and uh, got bashful kidneys, so I had to go back twice. And anyhow, I passed the exam, and I thought I was on my way to the Navy. Well, they uh, put us on a train, took us to St. Petersburg, Florida, and uh, after we got off the train... They told us we were not in the Navy, that we had not taken uh, the final ex- uh, swear-in, so, and they asked us to join the Merchant Marine, which I didn't want to do because I didn't know nothing about it, nothing whatsoever. And uh, they, they they took us to the base and showed us and some of the gunnery and so forth like that. It, it kind of appealed to me, is that part, that... Anyhow, I, I didn't want to join them, and uh, they asked me, Mr. Hoffman, where are you going to sleep tonight? And then, well, I was an 18-year-old kid, not having a place to sleep that night, you know, unless I go with them. So I joined them, but I was forced into it, more or less. And uh, I found out there's probably a 1,000 kids like, like that, right in that same base. And, well, we started, and the first day, we ate spinach and eggs. I hate spinach and, and dried eggs. But Then they had us pick up cigarette butts and wash toilets. It was a great day. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyhow, they played those little jokes on you, like, this is a, you have a college education? If you don't have a college education, step backwards twice, and there was a water thing there. You step back twice, you know where you went, and we weren't that dumb, (laughs) but anyhow, they played jokes on us and everything else, and uh, they gave me a pair of shoes, dungarees, like overalls, a uh, work uh, sailor's cap, and a... Dress, uniform, sailors, and uh, a pair of shoes that were tight. And I didn't dare complain about them because if you complained, they'd say, Hey, you're not a baby. Your mama ain't here. And and they they rode you pretty hard there. And, uh, well, uh, I had had a lot of boxing training with my, my uncle. My uncle was a prize fight manager, and he had... I fighters out there, and I used to train with them, and I got pretty good at that. My dad was afraid that I would turn professional, and he didn't want that. He took me out <laughs> to a place where there was a bunch of fighters. These were all guys that were uh, uh, retired, and they had a banquet for them. And uh, they're sitting at the table, and after a nice meal, that they're the. Uh, just got up and hit a little bell. These guys got up, and they start dancing around like this here, and they are all punch drunk, you know. And my dad let me know that's what was going to happen to me. And my, my type of fighting was not the type that uh, would give you a long career because I believed in finishing a guy off real quick, you know, fast as I could. And usually most of the fights I had, I ended in the first round. But anyhow, um, it gave me a lot of respect when I had the cruise mess. I took care of the cruise mess, and they didn't give me a lot of lip like they did the regular messmen, you know, the kind of thing about a fight. And I got in quite a few squabbles until I, well, I had an area where I was pretty well protected. You know, I didn't have to worry about fighting anymore. But with the Merchant Marine, fighting was very high, boxing that is. They had a, uh, a retired uh, a lightweight, I think it's lightweight, I might have that wrong, but uh, Benny Leonard. And he retired undefeated champion. And he was one of the teachers. And then also at one time, they had Jack Dempsey's team come down from New York. And the maritime fighters, were experienced fighters. And it was a a shame to see these experienced fighters beating up on young kids. And I really hated that. And uh, anyhow, just to show you how good they were, they they were never defeated in all the fights. I don't care what service come there. They they treated them bad because they beat up those teams there. And it was pros fighting amateurs, you know. And I hated to see that. Well, and these, uh, these, these guys were what they call permanent crew. And pardon the language that's there, but the men that went to sea called them TSBs, torpedo-scared bastards. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and anyhow, there was a lot of them, and they tried to talk me into that, and I said, no way I join a, a war and stay home. And well, that's how I got into the Merchant Marine. I made seven trips, all of them ocean voyages. All were some sort of invasion.
1: So and you, uh, so you were you wanted to go into Navy. You found yourself in the Merchant Marines, uh, and you were promised benefits, weren't you?
2: Yeah. Oh, every trip we get promised. And the other thing would just happen. You'd be home on leave and you had 30 days to give you. And the FBI would call you up and make you feel like you were mistreating the troops. Don't you think you ought to get out there? Them boys need you. Cut your leave short and go back to sea. Get those guns over to those fellas. They need them. There's a lot of truth in that, but uh, I always stayed my limited time. I. Think I love my family too much, and I was having too good a time with the girls at home. Just think about getting out to sea where there's nothing. You know.
0: So how long would a voyage be out on sea? How much, how much time voyages, would
2: you... Voyages are, One of my voyages was a little over six months, and that was an ammunition ship. And we had uh, up to 10,000 tons of ammunition on the ship. Okay. And we were with the 3rd Fleet service part of the fifth fleet for a while and we would go with the fleet while they were moving up but we were not allowed uh, to get close to the ships they had a 14 mile area where you had to stay back because an ammunition goes ship goes up with that ten thousand tons there it's going to blow most of the fleet up with it okay so we had to stay away so we had no shore leave for six months the only time I got ashore when I got to pick up the mail in a motor lifeboat, and during that six months, and and they, we went to an island there, and I don't know whether to tell you this or not, but anyhow, that there there was a big line of men in line, and two girls were servicing them. There must have been a hundred guys <laughs> in that
3: line. So but that's
2: were, the way it was, you know.
3: Were you on different ships all the time, seven or were different you ships? Seven different ships. Yeah.
2: You you sign only for one trip. They call it signing articles. Once you sign articles, you can't get off the ship unless there's something very wrong there. We had a uh, guy that died, and uh, we kept him in the cold storage. And by marine law at that time, uh, you had to bring a crewman that signed on back to the to the port that he signed on if he dies. So they kept this guy in there and. Would go down, be getting the food out there. There, we look at this dead guy laying there. You know.
0: <laughs> so, so, where did you guys set sail from? Was it seven different places that you set sail from? Yeah. Okay. So, where? Give us. Took
2: a- him for from, uh, Norfolk to North Africa, to uh, Sicily, to uh, Italy, and then. On the way back home, we stopped in uh, Cuba and picked up uh, 8,000 tons of sugar for Philadelphia. When I was in Cuba, I had a good time there. A lot of nice girls there. And uh, anyhow, it was 90 in the shade. We went up to Philadelphia. It was two below zero. We had every hunk of clothes, even double underwear, triple underwear on because we were so cold. And that ship got really cold with, with with freezing uh salt water, you know, and uh it was it was awful, you know. We made two trips to uh Cuba and at that time uh, uh Batista was president and he would work these people from daylight to dark, a husband would not be with his wife. They would it have, have them cut sugar, all the way to dark. There, and so the women were running, and there was some of were prostituting and everything else to get by, and uh, actually, uh, everybody hated Castro, but Castro was better to these people than uh, Batista ever was. Batista cater to the American gangsters, just like he's seen in The Godfather. And this was very true. I've seen that, you know. And uh, he, he, these guys were something else. I mean, they, they, would, they would kill you just as soon as they look at you. Mm-hmm.
1: So tell us a little bit about your first voyage. You're 18 years old. You'd, you grew up in St. Louis in Missouri, and now you're seeing ships in the ocean. Had to been a little scary.
2: Oh, it was! I had never seen the ocean till I went to Merchant Marine. I'd never seen a ship, you know, a real ship, you know. And uh, when we went and sailed to Africa, when going into the uh, across the Atlantic, I thought it uh, the danger was overrated because nothing happened, and we were zigzagging back and forth. I and mean, you could, you can't tell. They don't know. Go. Nobody goes straight on the convoys. They all zigzag, as to beat out wolf packs of submarines that lay out in front of you. And they would zigzag. And what we finally got to the entrance of the Mediterranean and the ship next to us got torpedoed. They all died. They all went down. And then we moved into the Mediterranean Sea. We went to the uh, Oran. And uh, there uh it was Arabs, and there's no such thing as an Arab. It's Arab. And these kids and these people there, if you used to call them an Arab, they get mad. they say, Arab, Joe, Arab, Arab. It's an Arab. And it is Arabian. It's not Arabian, you know. So anyhow, uh, and life was really cheap. Uh, little kids that could grab your legs and steal off your person you know anything they could and uh, while the the French were in the Oran and uh, they were having trouble Uh, Arab snipers that were aiding the Germans were taking rifles and shooting Frenchmen on the ships that were there and these French ships were more or less locked in there because it was just about the time when France was about you know as far as the Navy was concerned was pretty well bottled up and uh, they would shoot. So they had the, uh, uh, a battleship, Gene Bart, took and he shot. They, they they shelled all these places within rifle range. So they couldn't have places to hide and so forth that would shoot the. theater And I saw one a that there. He got caught stealing potatoes, and they beat him to death right in front of me. And that's... Well, I had an idea about uh, I was going to make a little money on the black market, and I had some sheets that belonged to me, you know, bed sheets. Well, they, the Arabs use them for clothing; you know, they make clothing out of them, and they're very valuable. And uh, I took two sheets, put them underneath my shirt, and proceeded to go ashore, you know, into the land, the inland, and uh, there was a French guard there. And uh, I wondered what's going to happen if he sees that i got this black market stuff, you know, that I'll probably go to jail, you know. That's what I was thinking. It was wrong, wrong, wrong. Well, anyhow, I went by the French guard, and the Arab come out, and he uh, started pulling at the sheets. Well, I had a blackjack that one of the crew members made for me, out of lead and rope, and uh, I hit him on top of the head and knocked him cold. And the French guard come over and told me, why did you take so much stuff from him before you did that? So, <laughs> you know, uh, that was O'Ran. And then Buzerti was more blown apart than O'Ran was. And uh, we unloaded some stuff there, and it was strictly all business. Get in, get out, you know. And uh, at, th- at that time... Uh, in, in northern Africa i thought Africa would be like like i've seen tourism music movies you know i thought i'd see elephants and everything else and this is a big dirty cities what they were you know and uh, <laughs> i went to a, to a uh, harem with girls that i wanted i'd seen movies there there in Bonnie's these beautiful gales i said boy i want to go see the harem went to the harem ugliest woman you ever seen in your life <laughs> <laughs> had tattoos on their foreheads and everything else and tribal marks and smell holy god
3: so when you were on the ship what were your duties what did you mostly do well, the
2: first time i was a messman the second time I, I was what they call a wiper Wipers works with the engineers the motors, some on the engine there. and the second time i was a fireman and i become a fireman water tender and i become an oiler and i retired as an oiler
3: and how I long was were you in? up
2: for deck engineer and i didn't take it
3: okay and how long did you serve
2: it was almost three years three years i had what they call three years uh uh sea duty you know
0: so, were was each voyage its own articles that you had to sign?
2: Oh yeah, each one, each each uh, uh, trip, you sign articles.
0: So theoretically, could you have gotten off after your articles were expired and not but, gone well, to another? Yeah.
2: Well, you, 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 after you finish a trip, you you, you can get off. You, huh. They they can't keep you on. you only uh, they can only hold you for that one trip, which you sign the articles for. Okay. And uh, sometimes it's two or three weeks before you sign articles. Uh, and there was this one ship that I was on, it had such a rotten uh, reputation. It come all the way from the uh, West Coast, sailed through the Panama, Panama Canal and up to Norfolk to recruit men where people didn't know about it. And just my luck, I got on that ship. That was an ammunition ship. And... Uh, they signed articles right away before we knew what the cargo was. In other words, I signed for 10,000 tons of ammunition that I didn't know about. And there was nothing I could do about it. And the government had to hand into it. I mean, he's big brother.
1: <laughs> the uh, convoy duty itself, I mean, you had the fear of the U-boats, uh, you know, ever-present. You know, you could uh, torpedoes launch at you. But the other thing is... A convoy operated completely in the dark, zigzagging in the middle of the ocean. That's dangerous.
2: Oh, that is, yeah. We've seen uh, crashes. I've seen a ship that had the whole ball turned off. And this is oh. 60, 70, sink.
1: 80 ships. Huh? A lot of ships, right, in a, lot a convoy? Of ships, yeah. So you saw collisions?
2: Collisions, yeah. And, and a lot of times we shot down our own airplanes due to the fact that they. When I was in uh, with the Japanese fighting the Japanese. There, the Japanese would get as close as they could to American ships, you know, and dive in a certain way. When these burst the shells, well, you got young kids with those guns, you know, and they're they're shooting at airplanes and in one battle we lost one hundred twenty six Navy ships. Mm. You, you not you ain't supposed to know that.
1: Now, early on in. Uh Early on in the war, most of the Merchant Marine ships weren't armed, but when you served, there was Navy gunners on board, wasn't there? Yeah,
2: it was one of the first Navy gunners on there, yeah. And and that was not a good thing. I mean, it it used to, just before that, very shortly before I went, that the ships would be stopped by a submarine. And the submarine wanted to keep its torpedoes as long as possible. They would stop the ship, with their, uh, what's called, gun, their six-inch gun they had on there. And they would put a bomb in there and blow the ship up. That way they didn't have to use up the torpedoes. And also they let the guys get into the lifeboats. But then after the bolt of the orange uh, were put on there, the sub commanders would often machine gun the crew in the water forever. And I was on one of those ships.
1: Charles, you wrote a book about your service, and in your book, at one point, you talk about the convoy never stopped to pick up survivors no. that that's kind of tough duty
2: it is tough you got to think that there they, they stopped to pick up there, you're a suit and duck for the submarines, and they want to get the submarine, and they tell you they, your life don't mean nothing that cargo has to get there.
1: And, and some of the ships were troop ships, troop where ships, there was yeah. 500 men on board?
2: 550 ships. Uh, 550 soldiers on the first ship that I've seen sunk. Wow. It was right next to us. I mean, and I don't know the name of the ship because it was in the night, you know, and and yeah, convoy scatters.
1: And very few survivors, if any, were picked up?
2: There were no survivors of that ship. Mm-hmm. And everything... Uh, if men in the water are often killed by death charges that they put out for the uh, submarines, not, they don't go deep enough. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll t- t- tell you another thing that some people, most people don't know, that uh, Churchill and Roosevelt caused the destruction of mermans. Mermansk, was, was most of the time frozen in, and we did get a convoy into there. I mean, and, and that was dirty, because uh, 33 ships were sunk in this convoy. And uh, the ones that got in were marooned or they couldn't get out there. Well, anyhow, the Germans were in Finland, and it was short distance from Finland to Murmansk, and they, they bombed out the Murmansk uh, 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 port. Well, unknown to the Germans, at night, the Russians rebuilt the port. Well, along came, they were so happy, Roosevelt and Churchill, about uh, uh, having the convoy getting through to Russia, or they weren't told about it. And in doing that, I let them know that the Mermaid's was open again, and they bombed it into oblivion again. They bombed it completely out again.
0: Wow! So you you carried men on one con, on one uh, voyage. You carried guns on, and then sugar. What else did you carry? What's it? Well, you carried sugar. You said on one, oh, you, yeah. carried yeah, you carried guns. You carried men. Was
2: just from uh, uh, Cuba to uh, Philadelphia.
0: Right. What were some other things that you guys carried?
2: We carried. We carried tanks. Okay. We, we, we carried locomotives. We carried airplanes parts. plant parts planes. And uh, ammunition galore. Every every merchant ship had heavy ammunition for their guns. That was always enough to blow up the ship. But when you had ten thousand tons, of, you know, even a rifle bolt could have set that off.
0: So, how long was it from being when you started underway until you got to your destination on a normal basis? Was it thirty days, sixty days? Oh,
2: I, I, mine averaged about thirty-five
0: days. Thirty-five days. Okay.
2: Because we did a lot of zigzagging. It all depends how the war is going as far as what you're zigging and zagging, you know. Okay.
1: I remember in your book, you talked about a time when you were in Italy that you hitched a ride with a truck driver oh, yeah, and actually got I went the ride up, right to, the up to the front. How how was the was that? captain
2: would have killed me if he knew that. <laughs> yeah, I, I just nonchalantly, I, he said you go up to the front and I said, I'd like to go up to the front. Go with me, you know. He said, I said, can you get me back by 3 o'clock? Sure. Went up there and Seen great big holes in the road, and uh, there was a building that was in the way. We got there, and he pushed a certain button thing on the truck That there, and all of a sudden this big tank comes up and just blows this building, I mean, all over. And we rode right over the top of it. It was scattered on the road. Hmm. And then they had to wait. Going up there, you had to worry about uh, rifle fire, snipers on the trucks.
1: So that was your only trip to the front, I guess. Yeah,
2: it was the real front. I mean, it was this I was very lucky. I mean, when I got up there, we were doing the shelling, not getting shelled, you know. So I just went up there and went back. I hit it rather easy.
3: So in your book here, you talk about blacked out convoys. What were those?
2: Blacked out convoys? Mm-hmm. Well, that's when no lights whatsoever. Every ship's the dark there. And. Uh, you're not allowed to use the radios. Subs pick up the radios. You know, in the and so you have what they call the blinker lights. That I know the name of them, but I can't think of it right now. The Navy's got a name for them. And we always had a signalman, a Navy signalman aboard. And uh, everybody else was running the ship as a merchant crew. And yet you have, for for guns, you're supposed to have the Navy, Navy man. But I was never on a ship that the Merchant Marine didn't volunteer and had almost as many men, Merchant Marine men in the guns. And they were better than the Navy was. The Navy kids, you know, my gun that I was or, you know, on the first attack that I was in, it, there, these kids froze. They couldn't do nothing. They were two 18-year-olds, the same age as I am, and they were... I was supposed to help them, and I operated the gun.
1: When you were at sea, I guess it was in 1944, you heard some real discouraging news that FDR died. The FDR was a very staunch supporter of the Merchant Marine, oh, yes. and as whoa, was Yes, that his was his
2: a very sad time. You could feel it all throughout that convoy there that everybody was disheartened, you know, because they, they loved him. I mean, you know, he, he was trying to make him better in front of the Merchant Marine. For every guy you got to help some merchant, you got about 10 of them that want to do damage to it. You got to remember, these are big ship owners that own this there. And uh, the government provides the ships and let them have the ships at the end of the war if they survive. And uh, they pay them to run them.
1: And these were Liberty ships, they were called. Well,
2: not all. They were Liberty Victories, C-1s, C-2s, tankers.
1: And with the mobilization of the United States, those things were built in, like, a ridiculous small number of oh, days. amazing. It was amazing. 60 days or something like that, yeah. 90 days. So they were building them really quick and putting them to sea. They, w- they weren't luxury ships by any means, were they? No,
0: no. No creature comforts, huh?
2: Well, a lot better than being in a mud as a soldier and crawling on your belly. I mean, you know, getting... I would just like to think about that poor guy out there, that soldier. I keep thinking about it. I know, 10 times he's got diarrhea or dysentery descent grief and everything there. And, oh boy, he's he's, he's a mess on a good day. Mm-hmm. Like My brother did it there, he, he laid down uh, uh, lines for communication wires. And uh, the gooks would come and cut the wires.
3: Let's say he had to go
2: out again. And there'd be rifle companies that have to Sometimes they'd shoot them guys, you know. They'd catch him there. He had a lot worse than I did.
1: So the um, the war was ending. You were uh, on another cruise, and yet you know there was still dangers out there. Your ships oh, yeah. would hit landmines and different things well, like that.
2: A lot of the times, the, the mines break loose, and God knows how long they're going to float. That they're I wanted to go. I wanted to see Venice, Sicily, so bad. And we started to go into the harbor there, and the ship in front of us hit a mine, blocked the harbor, and we couldn't get in. So we had to go down to Casino. Casino, this place there, had been bobbed into nothing. There was nothing left. And these people hated Americans because they kept bombing them. We kept bombing them even after there was no military stuff there whatsoever. There was nothing but civilians, and they were killing civilians. Some idiot had just thought it needed more bombing, and they had leveled it. There was nothing standing there. I mean, there there wasn't a building anywhere standing.
1: You said in your book at one point when you were coming home that I learned more about in the Merchant Marine about real men and myself.
2: Well, yeah. Well, I knew that I could fight. I knew I could operate a gun. I knew I wouldn't uh, retreat, that I was no coward, and
1: you were coming home a wiser man than that eighteen-year-old yeah, well, had left.
2: We had on one one ship, we had men that were paratroopers. They were jumping on this island, and the men on the island were Americans. Were shooting them. It was miscommunications. Another thing used to happen that there at one time we used our gun on the ship it was a four-inch fifty, and we shelled what we thought were Nazi troops. And uh, the American troops had moved up to this emplacement where we shelled. Mm. That's all it is.
1: And you lost a friend on your first voyage, yeah. didn't you? A gentleman by the name of Art?
2: Yeah, Art Finley. Yeah, he was a wonderful
1: guy. He's a neighbor, somebody you knew in St. Louis?
2: Well, I, I didn't know him from, uh, until I got to the Merchant Marine, but we'd become buddies, you know. And He was in uh, 236 Division. I was in 237
0: was, was there
2: quite a day when we got bombed?
0: Was it all on the job training before you guys set sail, or did you, or did you guys have training before you set sail?
2: No, I didn't have much training. I mean, I had uh, looked at the guns; is about all. And uh, other than the boxing, I did. That was I got more training on that. <laughs> but, yeah, those captains and uh, on the ships, they they love boxing. I'll tell you.
0: So when you had to learn your job on the ship, whatever the you know your job was at that time. Was that just literally on-the-job training you learned while you were on the ship, or did they take you somewhere to teach you how to do it? Or
2: Oh, you learn on the ship.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: It, it's uh, what, what you do, like say you, you make one trip. Let's say I start as a messman, and I want to become a wiper. And, and that's a different uh, department. The most dangerous job you can have is the engine room. You're three stories underneath the sea. Your chance of getting out if the ship is hit is very limited. you got stairways like this going up. Well, anyhow, you take an examination for what you want. Like, say, if I wanted to, I wanted to be an oiler, I had to take an examination for it. But during the time on my trip hit there, I would go and watch the oiler and do exactly what the oiler did. So there was nothing new to me. you know. There were, in an oiler, you got what they call a reciprocating engine. And the uh, crank, oh God, it's, I'd say as big as, bigger than this. And it comes around, and you take your hand and put it there. And when it comes down, it hits your hand. And you got to learn to leave your hand relaxed. So when that hits it, it don't hurt it. If you ridge it up, that big thing's going to knock it. And you have to learn that. And then you take the oil slick and you examine it to see whether it's burnt or how, it's, how the oil's holding up. And then, there, even though as modern as it was for that time, there's there, still a lot of hand oiling. Okay. And that's what an oiler does. And then you pack pumps and so forth like that, you know, for, and uh, if you're a fireman, you gin the ball. Boilers and you change the uh, heaters for the, the boilers, They get changed twice.
1: There's a there's a couple really strange factoids about service in the, in the merchant marine, and, and uh, one one of the things that we read there's a book by Gerald Reminick, uh, Patriots and Heroes: two oh, Stories okay. in a Merchant Marine, and he talks about it and it says one out of every six. Merchant Marine were killed, taken prisoners, seriously wounded, marooned in foreign ports, or treated as spies. That's true. One, of a, one out of every six. Well,
2: 16%. Yeah, and uh, the Navy, oh, didn't like that. And uh, did it the Marines. They keep telling you that, don't run the Marine down by saying that you had more casualties. But we did, we had a hell of a lot more casualties than they did.
1: Well, and that's the other thing that, that you know, we're, we're a lot wiser looking back, but the Merchant Marine. By percentage, had the highest casualty rate of any branch of service. That's right. And yet, guys were totally unheralded, unsung
2: heroes. Oh, well, that's it.
1: So, and the other thing, the other thing that's a strange sounding story is, if your ship was sunk, the you moment you run. got wet, your pay stopped.
2: Your pay stopped. That's true.
1: And and you had to find your way back to you find your
2: way back. That's
1: right. To put on your own dime, yeah, I
2: yeah. guess it was. Well, and also what well, they don't didn't tell you in there, or maybe he did. remick might tell you in there. But they, they took merchant seamen off that were wounded and put army men in their place because they didn't have any the room for planes, merchant seamen to die, to make room for a soldier or a marine or navy man.
3: So, did you make the same amount of money as the navy? We
2: made person? about ten dollars more, and then the navy would lie about our voyages They would tell these soldiers, the sailors, that like like we were millionaires. You know, we were. Strictly there for the money and making a lot of money. I never got paid so lousy in my life. I made more money boxing than I did in the mercenary.
0: What was the Selling pay like? Cigarettes. Did they have? Did they pay you once the once it was done, or did they pay you? A... When
2: you're done. They pay you in cash.
0: Okay. So you guys, when you guys got into a port, you had a pocket full of cash. No, no.
2: You, you have what they call a draw. You go up and ask to uh, get certain amount of money. They'll give you a certain amount of money out of your pay, you know. Okay. Many a guy went and gambled his pay away and had to stay on the ship for another trip. Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you. Tales all old uh, as time. I have never seen any sharper card players in my life than it was in the mercury <laughs> We had a uh, British soldier come aboard that there, and he thought he was going to win some money. End up throwing him off the gangplank after he lost everything he had. These guys, I mean, they're—I well, I can't describe. I, I started playing with him. I said, "Charlie, this is out of your league." See you later, guys.
3: Yeah. So you came back uh, after you did all of your your uh, trips. You came back home. What did you do then?
2: Well, Lori, in effect, my mother and father and my brothers and sisters and. Uh, Relatives come to see me, um, come see me there. And, and they'd question you about different things in there, and uh, you wouldn't tell them about this,
1: not at that time. And you uh, <laughs> you went back to work at a place called Joy Manufacturing, yeah. but you had to remind him that Truman promised you your job back,
2: right? Yeah, and the uh, personnel manager didn't like me, and I didn't like him. And uh, he told me, I don't have to give you your job back. I said, let's see what Harry Truman's got to say about that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And how long did you work there? 24 years. 24 years?
1: Yeah. Now, there's another interesting little story that I picked up from your book. Korean War started. Yeah. And they wanted to draft you.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I told her I wouldn't go.
1: So you usually just don't tell... The government, did you well, want to you go? How do you that work that out? I
2: said, I don't care what you do. You can put me in jail or whatever. Like, I'm not going to serve it. I'm, I, I'm tired of you liars. So I called them. And boy, this one doctor says, Oh boy, boy, he couldn't believe it. I was telling them off, you know.
1: So you're home now, and and you don't have to go in there. They uh, they revised your draft status and said, st- yeah, you know. that." That's
2: what they did, yeah. Okay.
1: They put so you, service uh,
2: merchant marine. They put so, it on my card.
1: So you're you're home now, and, and uh, you, again, you learn that you don't have any benefits. You're, yeah. you're still a fairly young man. You're, what, 22, 23? Yeah. GI Bill, you're not getting any of those I benefits. I get the GI
2: Bill, and we had to pay the highest rates for our uh, uh, homes that we were buying.
1: So you found more and more promises that were made to you and, and not kept.
2: Well, I'll tell you, if you read Remick's book, and there's some others that are, you'll tell you— This goes all the way back to George Washington that the Congress has screwed the Merchant Marine all the way back to them. Every war. You know know who started that? You ever hear Walter Winchell? Yes. He was the biggest liar that ever lived. And he got sued by the Merchant Marine. And then he he went and got a judge that just slapped him on the wrist for doing it, you know. And Westbrook Pregler. None of his stories were true about the merchant He went and said that uh, uh, the merchantmen were putting uh, uh, not sand but uh, emery dust into the motors, and he called them motors. Not you
1: know. one of the uh, one of the things that's important to us here at the museum. That from day one, you know, the museum was founded by Ralph Barraley. That was this was his dream to build a museum. And one of the first things I think that we ever heard from Ralph was the importance of the merchant marine. Ralph called them the unsung heroes of World War II, and he was determined that we get as many stories about merchant mariners in here as we could. Oh, that's great. We always fly the merchant marine flag, but he called you guys the unsung heroes of the war, and you you know, fought as valiantly as those that had boots on the ground, the armed forces. And uh, it it just seems like. It, it's, it had to have been hard because you weren't even recognized as a veteran until how oh, many just years Just That's all
2: we got out of it. You know, they wanted to give us cardboard medals.
1: Cardboard medals. Yeah, and they wanted
2: us to pay $25 for them.
1: <laughs> wow. So basically, each merchant marine had to wait 43 years to be given you know, the veteran status.
2: You to maybe cut this off, what I'm going to say here what i'd like to, i'd like to do i'd like to take all the medals that i got and i got a thing to do and bounce them off a congressman's head
1: <laughs> you know at, at at 97 charles you're allowed to say stuff like that yep yeah. yeah.
0: absolutely absolutely they're not alive anyway so, <laughs> <laughs> so well
3: you guys really had it rough and then to come back and not get any kind of recognition and you know and to be deceived to begin with, um, it makes it pretty tough. But Ralph was always very adamant that we made sure that well, that's great. we told the Merchant marine stories because he, he always said without the Merchant Marines, we would have lost the war.
2: That's uh, the truth. I mean, who's going to bring this stuff over? The Navy can't do it. Do you know on a merchant ship, you'll have, as a rule, you'll have 40 men running the ship. And then if they have the gunners you get usually twenty two. But the Navy uses three hundred and fifteen for the same ship. Yeah. Each guy's got a little rating and so forth and does just a little bit, you know. My you give me that book about the uh Enterprise. My cousin was on the Enterprise. He was the most direct decorated man in St. Louis at the time. What was his name? Uh uh uh, George Wilson Jr., his father was a pride promoter. Okay. You know, he was a tough guy, I'll tell you. Well, before, before we
1: close, I want to mention that you wrote a book, yeah, and you're actually working on a second book. Your first book is titled My Life as a U.S. Merchant Marine in World War II.
2: Yes, a, a, actually, that is a, a little bit wrong. It should be Merchant Marine or I maybe mean, proper.
1: Okay. And where can people get that book?
2: Oh, uh, it's Amazon. I took the first one, was, and uh, they've been more or less screwing me. I mean, they've sold books, and they don't send me the money. They sold me a check for about $68 one time, and that was it. And since then, uh, everybody and their brothers have been asking me for a book, you know, and, I mean, you know, and then they got the book and so forth, and having me sign them. But Amazon's keeping the money.
0: Well, we really appreciate having you in the studio with us today, Charles, and uh, telling your story and your from your experience and your uh, frame of reference. Um, and we're really proud to have you in the uh, museum and uh, your story here and uh, so grateful for what you've did for the country, even though you guys were unsung. Uh, and we thank you so much for your time tonight. We're going to go ahead and sign off of All the right. dog te- Go ahead, Charles. Thank you. You're welcome. We're going to go ahead and sign off of the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a five hundred one c three nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneeessary at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Join us next time on the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum as we host Matthew W. Sims, U.S. Army medic. Combat medics play a unique role in today's modern military. Not only must they be experts in battlefield medicine, but they also must remain proficient in combat tactical skills. They frequently witness injuries and death and are often exposed to personal threats of trauma. Medics run towards the danger to render aid to those injured while exposing themselves to enemy fire. While under attack, medics must fight alongside their fellow soldiers. Combat medics and corpsmen feel the best way to serve and save lives was alongside the troops. Because of this double-duty role, combat medics often face stressors that other military specialties do not. Matt Sims serve our country and his unit as a combat medic, and medics are faced with an ethical dilemma. Matt, reflecting on his service, said, First, we train to hurt." Then we trained to heal. In 2005, during his deployment to Iraq, Matt regularly placed himself in harm's way. Matt was awarded three Purple Hearts, so join us next week for Matt's story.